following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn today to Luke 12. Studying this gospel together, Luke 12, I'm going to read verses 13 through 21 from God's Word. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods." And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, so relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and all the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is God's holy word. In economic terms, I believe our text is telling us this morning, you are one of two things, either a contented, thankful, faithful steward of each material resource God has put in your hands, or you may be one whom he would call a fool, because in fact your possessions own you. You know, almost every year, and sometimes multiple times in the year, there are devastating wildfires in the United States, as there were this year, particularly in West Texas and other areas of the Southwest. And you can always look for some familiar scenes to happen every time. The news cameras will go out, and and here will be a couple interviewed in front of a pile of still smoking blackened ruins that was their home a day or two before. And I can remember seeing scenes like this where the man and wife would be maybe holding hands or arms around each other as they tell the reporter, we're so thankful no one was harmed. Our family came out of this. We weren't hurt. We're sad to lose our home, but it's just a house. We can build it again. But then there are the other reports, and sometimes you'll see them both in a single news clip where the camera is focused on another couple, and they are bewildered and anguished 
and their voices rise almost to a wail as they speak. Everything we worked for for 30 years is lost. All our precious possessions, gone. We're wiped out. We cannot recover. Now, I certainly don't want to make light of a crisis and a catastrophe that I have never experienced. And I don't want to bring any mockery upon people in that secondary position. But I would hope, if I ever found myself losing my home to a drastic fire, I would certainly wish I could face it like that first couple, wouldn't you? Assuming that loved ones are safe, the stuff that we lose, including the roof over our head, is just stuff. Some days it's, it's going to be hauled off to the dump. It's going to be sold at an auction. It's going to possibly trickle down to my grandchildren. And there isn't an item of it that's going to accompany me to heaven. Not an antique. Not a single book out of the many thousands. Not a photo album. It's all stuff. Now, according to the perspective of Jesus Christ, the first couple that I described expressing hope in the midst of their loss would seem to be a couple who you could say biblically owned their possessions in a light kind of possession. The second couple was actually owned by their possessions in a tragic way. Wealth and the pursuit of it and the daydreams we have about it play powerful roles in our lives, whether we have large wealth or we don't. Now, you might easily decide today that because this text is about a so-called rich man, that you can kind of tune out. This is speaking to people who are rich, and you say, that sure isn't me. In your mind, this is a text for the prospering businessman with multiple businesses that he owns, the person with the multi-million dollar home who could walk into the car dealership and write a check from his, his petty cash account to buy a brand new Lincoln Navigator. You say, that sure isn't me. But I want to say to you that I really believe this text speaks to every one of us in every possible economic condition. Because either we have great wealth, and it can easily be, it need not necessarily be, but it can easily be an impediment to spiritual growth and prospering in the Lord, or we find ourselves wanting it. And the wanting of it and the pursuing after it can corrupt us spiritually just as much as the having of too much. Jesus responds to a man here who approached him inappropriately. And by the way, people approach pastors this way. They sometimes come and say, Pastor, I want you to get over here and tell my wife what to do. I've actually had that phone call. Well, here's a man who says, Jesus, you're a rabbi. You've got some kind of authority. My brother's mishandling the will. He's the executor. Come and tell him to give me what he's supposed to give me. And you see Jesus' response. He was very wise. He said, who am I to get involved in that? That's not my calling. 
And then he immediately generalized what the man had talked about and spoke to the crowd and said, Be on your guard against covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Who was coveting in in that situation? Jesus would probably have said both of those men were. The brother who didn't want to share and the brother who, who had strong ideas about what he had to get his hands upon. The main subject of our passage is covetousness. And you probably know that this falls under the definition of one of the Ten Commandments. Rare indeed are the Christians who can name all Ten Commandments and go right through them, so I'll remind you that this is number 10 in order as we read them in Exodus chapter 20. And you might think, well, let's see, this isn't as high on the list as there's only one God, don't profane his name, honor your father and mother, don't kill, don't murder. This must be a very minor one down there at number 10 which actually says in the statement of the the commandment, do not covet anything that is your neighbor's. This must be a lower level sin. But think about it for a minute. If you understand the Bible's picture implied about what happened to Satan, how an angel of light created to bring glory to God and serve God with authority, desired to have the authority of God himself the downfall of Satan was due to covetousness. And if you would look at the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, what was Eve's temptation? God had made all good things, every good thing to eat and enjoy and feast upon and said, one thing I give you as a test, don't touch this. And she coveted the one thing that she was told not to have. So it seems like this little number 10 sin can have a pretty big importance. Now, confession's good for the soul. I told my wife I have to let the congregation know that, you know, the the Scripture preaches to the preacher in really practical ways. I I saw how this was cutting across my life in a couple ways just last week as I was working on this sermon, and I went home, and I was checking some things on the computer. I thought, haven't checked on the retirement fund in a while. Oh, boy, this is a bad thing to do this And I went in, you know, online, checked up on the retirement account. Ugh! Have you had that reaction with yours lately? They haven't been doing so well. And my mind went through all kinds of things. Oh, if I had put things in the, you know, the safer fund and done that two months ago before the big drop, and oh, what am I going to do? I didn't earn. And I thought, wait a minute. The text I'm working on is preaching to me about my retirement fund. I was having a conversation with my wife about my car not so long ago. I drive a perfectly fine car. It's six years old. I have no major problems with it. It's a high-quality car, not a high-priced car, but a medium-quality, medium-priced car. And I was thinking to my, I was having a little conversation like this man was having with me. I said, self, you owe yourself a new car. You can afford a new car. This car you're driving is six years old. Now, why do you have to get rid of a six-year-old car? No reason, except covetousness. I'm making a public pledge. I'm not selling the car. (laughs) God spoke to me. This text addresses us where we live. And it has a simple division, as I look at it with you today, into 
two main points. First of all, that we would look at the fool who is rich toward himself, and then towards his antitype or his opposite, the believer who is rich toward God. First, the man in the parable, the fool who is rich toward himself, or the rich fool, as the title of the parable is often given. Now, you do need to understand this man's a model citizen. He's not a crook. There is no implication whatsoever that he earned his money by any deceitful or wrong means. He didn't cheat on his taxes. He didn't deceive other people. In fact, this man created jobs in his community because his farms were prospering and he hired more people. Even the president of the United States can't make jobs. This man could. And and he was admired. I have no doubt that people wanted him to be president of the Chamber of Commerce or head of the Rotary or something like that. He was an admired citizen, a worthy citizen, not a crook. Keep that in mind. On the human level, he was to be respected. What was wrong with him? Well, verses 17 and following show us a man who is completely self-absorbed, and self-consumed. He has no right understanding of ownership. The only thing he knows about ownership is what the title deeds down at the county hall say about his property. And so in these verses, in just three verses, he says, I, six times, I will, I will, I will. And then he says, my, four times, I, 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 my, 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 my. It's all about him. He has no concept that anything he owns has any relation whatsoever to anything beyond his life or to other people or to God or to eternity. Now, another thing about this man to see is is what you could call perhaps the upward pull, the reverse gravity of wealth. Wealth is always trying to move us upward somehow, whether we're actually moving there or just looking up, because we never can have enough, right? Right? No matter what you have, no matter what car you drive, what house you live in, what your income is, you always imagine yourself a couple steps higher. How do I get there? One uh, fellow preached a sermon on this. You notice this rich fool doesn't have a name, and, and this preacher used his imagination and gave him a name. He said, I'm going to call him Bigger Barnes, Mr. Bigger Barnes. And Bigger Barnes is the syndrome here. You've always got to have more. Isn't that the American way of life? We have to have a higher living standard than our parents. We've been taught that that's the way it's supposed to be. And so we crave it, and we drive for it, and we reach for it, and we think about it all the time. Proverbs 21, 26 long ago spoke about the man who all day long craves more. Now, I don't know, I'm talking to people of many different age groups, and some of you certainly can remember when you started out as adults, if you're in your senior years, that an income of $20,000 once upon a time was grand. Wow, $20,000 a year. That's below the poverty line today. Maybe you can remember very well if you thought as an adult of of the day that would come when you might make $50,000, you thought, wow. $50,000, I could do anything if I could make that. And then you got there, and you thought, oh my goodness, I need 75. And maybe you got to 75, and you thought, 
you know, the only way I can really function and live the way I ought to live and I deserve to live is if I had 125. And on it goes. It doesn't stop. No matter what level you are at, you're always looking above and saying, I need to be there. How do I leverage myself? How do I reach up and get there? It's a well-documented fact that our grandparents and even our parents, for those of us who are older, who were, if they were middle class or even lower middle class, lived in a house, let's say in the 1940s as World War II ended, that on average had a square footage about half of what we live in today. Today we think, well, goodness, a family house, it has to have more than 2,000, preferably 2,400, maybe 2,600 square feet. Well, go back to the 1940s. 12 or 1,400 was fairly average. And people lived happy lives, as far as I can understand But we have this ever onward, ever upward, economically pushing the ceiling up. And of course, an age of easy credit, I don't have to tell you what it has done to make it possible for us to get in trouble as we keep moving that ceiling up and saying, I've got to get there and I've got to get there. And first thing I know, can barely afford the monthly payments on everything we've obtained on credit. Jesus said, beware. Covetousness is a trap that will always make you unsatisfied, whether you're rich or poor. Beware of it. Now, one more thing to see in this man, Mr. Bigger Barnes, if you want to call him that, the rich fool, is that he saw money and materialism as his security blanket. We are allowed, we are privileged to sort of visit his little soliloquy going on inside his head as he looks at his success spread out. And he says to himself, soul, you can relax. Boy, have you done well. Eat, drink, be merry, take a trip to Europe. You have an ample safety net surrounding you. Be comfortable, enjoy. One commentator pointed out something I hadn't thought about. He said, do you realize that this is actually the only place in the New Testament that the notion of retirement is spoken about? I think he's correct. I don't know of anywhere else that retirement is, you know, in the world before the modern era, retirement wasn't something anyone thought of. Well, here was this man. I'm wealthy. I don't have to work anymore. Just rest in my comfortable, goose-down security blanket of wealth. It's a very modern idea that society owes us 20 or 30 or more years of carefree comfort after our working lives. I have to be careful because I'll surely step on some toes since this is a a community and a county full of retirement communities. And please don't hear me saying that retirement is a bad thing or retirement communities are a bad thing. Neither is true. But what is the main marketing strategy that you hear from any retirement community. It it basically is the thought, come join us and relax in our deluxe cocoon of social enjoyment, medical support, and absolute security. We will take care of you and you'll have a great time until the funeral director's van arrives for you some night. They don't tell you that one. 
but it happens. Material security has this way of of anesthetizing us against the true reality, against eternity. And we get so fixed on what money is going to do. When will my retirement account be built up enough that I can actually retire? We can actually be blinded to the realities we ought to be paying attention to of an eternal kind. Well, this man had a kind of hand grenade go off by the Spirit of God as the Lord somehow spoke to him. And verse 20 tells of it, God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is going to be required of you and the things you have prepared, who are they going to belong to? Now, why would God call somebody a fool? That's a very strong Bible word that means having no sense or a rational mind. In fact, it means more than that because Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool is an atheist. Now, this man, we don't know, had declared atheism. He probably had not. He probably was a trustee or a deacon in the church, for all we know. But the fact is, he was a practicing atheist because everything he did looked not to God, not to eternity, but to now and to the bank balance. And that is what he depended on, not on God. For God to say, your soul is required, one comment made on this text is that that's essentially made in a banker's terminology, as if the president of the bank called you up and said, hey, you know that home equity loan you have with us? It's required. It's canceled. Pay it off tonight. And you'd be in a tremendous panic. How would you come up with it? It's so ironic here that a man who thought everything was absolutely going his way was called to eternity, and he had to account to God, to whom he would have nothing to say. He looked foolish. And the people would come to his funeral and the reading of the will afterwards, and what would their interest be? Who's going to get the 65 Corvette? Who's going to get the beach house at Stone Harbor? Who's going to get the titanium golf clubs? Who will get all those stock certificates? Because, you see, when he was gone, it was stuff that mattered. The pile of stuff that he had to distribute. This fool thought he had a storage problem. He had a soul problem of the first magnitude. Now let's switch gears and talk for a few minutes about his anti-type or his opposite. This person isn't named or, or described here, but... He certainly exists, the person who would not be like this, the one who at the very end of verse 21 is described as being rich towards God, a believer who is rich towards God is what Jesus is calling for by this negative example. Well, first of all, if we're talking about a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to have a person then that has an entirely different life or orientation, who does not stand upon, nor worship, nor completely aspire to worldly wealth, and who knows that the cost of his house and the amount of his bank account does not impress God. We shouldn't have to pound it home to say to a Christian, the Lord is not impressed with your wealth. 
In fact, the Lord may even regard you with great concern because your wealth may be a great impediment. Jesus was the one who said how hard it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God, harder than a camel fitting through the eye of a needle. The one who is truly rich towards God is the one who knows that God's mercy and grace showered on us in Jesus Christ, in his cross, in his resurrection, these things are our wealth and our promised habitation in eternity, in heaven. The fact that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, these things, this is the eternal wealth that nothing can take it from us. It can't be lost, and we don't give it up when we die. We gain it when we die. It so happens I'm a customer of the Fulton Bank here in Lancaster County. actually use the branch most of the time that's right straight behind me a quarter of a mile up the road at Old Hickory. You may or may not know that the construction that some of you can see looking out the windows right across the way here is another Fulton Bank. It is, in fact, the home of the Old Hickory Fulton Bank, which is going to move its quarters in just a couple months' time. Last week I got a letter sent to all the customers, telling us when they announced a day in December. I, I actually thought they're pretty optimistic based on what I see over there, but maybe they're going to work day and night. There's a day in December, then they said, we will be operating right there. Don't worry, your accounts will be moved to this branch unless you do something different about it. Well, I found this a great reassurance. Because I thought to myself, they're moving, they're moving my money. Maybe they carry the money in little individual bags, and there's a bag marked Rogers, you know, and they're going down Oregon Pike, and they drop the Rogers bag and don't even notice that my $202.43 blows all over Oregon Pike. I'm so happy to hear them say, my account is safe. It's sure it will be there. After all, banks do lose people's money. Americans have certainly found that out. Mutual funds lose your money. Retirement scams lose your money. Life insurance scams lose your money. But the Christian who is rich towards God says, you can't lose it. It can't go away. It can't be defrauded. It can't be stolen. It's an incorruptible inheritance that I have in heaven. And knowing that just changes your whole perspective. Well, another thing to know about a person who is rich towards God is having an idea of their true wealth. They then know how to handle the ownership issue with whatever wealth does come into their hands. And they know that that involves giving. This isn't working into a stewardship sermon. That's really an outgrowth of what is here. You can't be rich towards God and be the person who only gathers it in and hoards it up. You need to be the open-handed person the Bible describes who knows what is not mine to keep, that God has only given me as a trust, and I must give away and invest in his name. I won't linger long on the tithing principle, but I think it should be mentioned here. The 10% tithe begins in the Old Testament and continues into the New Testament, not as a hard-lined law of God, but as a principle, as a goal, as a standard for the life of believers to follow. $9 out of 10, the Lord says, use it. Use it wisely. Take delight in it. But give $1 in 10 to me. 
because that is mine, and you'll remember my ownership. Now, every survey that I see today and have seen for many years says that just about 3%, I think it might be just edging over 3% of the wealth owned and controlled by evangelical Christians, these are the conservative folks, is given to the Lord's work. That seems to tell me that a lot of people think God's tithe is a negotiable standard. Malachi took it up, and people were complaining that they weren't seeing God's blessing, and he said, would you like to be blessed by God? Get a few things straight in your life. One of them would be, stop robbing God of his tithe. Now, I just tell you, from personal witness, I don't know how I would remember that God is the true owner of everything I have unless I was engaged every week in this exercise of handing it back to him and saying, Lord, here's your part. I acknowledge you. I depend on you. Thank you. I find it's necessary to physically do that, to write the check out every week. I try to do it every single week. If I miss a week, I write double the amount the next week. Now, you know, we, like other churches, make it possible to do automatic withdrawals. One of my sons says, that's the way, Dad. I'll be more faithful giving that way. I said, fine, son. If you can't be faithful the other way, do it that way. But I like to come and physically do it because it, it says something to me. Every week it reminds me, 90% is yours, 10% is the Lord's. Don't rob him. It's a discipline of the Christian life that trains me in the attitude of, What belongs to who? And once having established that, it becomes a habit, and it even becomes a joy. It doesn't become some arduous thing every week where I have to take my pen and say, oh, I really don't want to write this check. I really don't want to give God that. No. It's a joy because God shows me over the years that I can live on the part that is mine when he has his part. A last aspect of being rich towards God comes, I think, in the twin characteristics I would like to have time to say much more about. But I call these twin characteristics contentment and thankfulness. Two things that ought to characterize a Christian life when we think of material things and of money and and wealth. Worldly people don't know much about either of these things because they don't come naturally. We are not naturally contented, and we are not naturally thankful. Both of those things have to be cultivated by some deliberate effort. Contentment actually comes by trusting God and seeing him as Lord and overseer of life, even the hard parts, even the unemployment parts. I was talking with a member or a would-be member of our church in the new members class who was telling about years of unemployment that he experienced in his life and how excruciatingly hard it was. And yet he determined to trust God. Philippians 4.11 has Paul saying, I have learned in whatever situation I am found there to be content. I always heard the word content in that verse. I thought, yes, contentment, that's the main thing Philippians 4.11 is about. But I hadn't noticed for a long time that Paul used the verb that he learned. He was schooled before he came to really embrace contentment. How was he schooled? Largely by deprivation, by hard times, by doing without, by literally going hungry. He began to understand what was essential in his life and what was merely frivolous. And then there's the giving of thanks. 
Oh, we do that pretty well when Thanksgiving rolls around every year. We can have a testimony service and folks want to rush to the microphone and give thanks. I'm glad you do. But I challenge you about giving thanks every day. Reminding yourself that this is an absolutely essential part of daily prayer. Giving thanks is like an act of self-denial. Because what tends to rise and starts to come out of our throats and our tongues is, Lord, I have a right to this thing. Why don't I have it? Or why don't I have all of it? Or why don't I have it right? And then you stop and say, wait a minute. Thankfulness, thanksgiving, stops that whine of what I'm owed. Even the simple act of giving thanks for food. You know, I think there's some Christians who think that's sort of a ritual. They dare not eat a sandwich if they didn't bow their head. Well, that's good. I'm glad you have that habit. But think about why you do it. You do it because here's a, here's a moment in your life when you can just stop and say, Lord, thank you for simple nourishment. Thank you for the fellowship of this person who's sharing lunch with me. Thank you for your goodness. I depend on it. I need it. And if we would thank God more, covetousness would be chased away. The question is, who or what really owns you? In Luke 12, I think Jesus said, either you are a contented, thankful, faithful steward of things you don't originally own, but God lets you manage, or else he would term you a hard word, a fool, because in some manner your possessions own you. I pray you will not be like our rich man who, as God took him to account in eternity, looked over the balance sheet of God's righteousness only to find out that he was flat broke. Let's pray together. Father, there's such difference among us in what you've allowed us to have in worldly things. Some here with great abundance, real wealth in the upper percentile of the whole world. Others very average, others struggling hard, wondering why, maybe even feeling bitter because it's so hard just to get enough to pay bills or to get a job at all. Every one of us, Lord, is subject to this covetousness. Worldly things do their number on us. I pray, Father, that you would teach your people balance, generosity, Gratitude for your saving and sustaining grace and contentment as we learn the right way to relate to the things in our lives. And may you get praise and may your kingdom prosper as we support it in the way you ask us to. In Jesus' name, amen.